You know, trend experts tell us that the more urbanized and the more technologically advanced a society gets, the more people yearn for personal contact. Uh, In other words, the more high-tech we are, the more high-touch we need. Uh, The mobility of our culture has somewhat exacerbated the problem uh, somewhat. You know, it used to be in the olden days, a generation or two back, where people lived uh, on the same street in the same community for decades at times, and uh, neighbors became neighbors and long-term neighbors. It also used to be that people would work in the same place uh, for a long period of time and have the same colleagues. Not so much anymore. You know, corporations have a bottom line, and uh, they will change employees as fast as computer hardware uh, if somehow it'll yield them a, a bigger profit. And employees with an eye on the future will take advantage of any opportunity to jump ship and get a more lucrative type position, you know, climbing to the next rung on the ladder, so to speak. Now, there's nothing really morally wrong with any of this stuff, but we understand it, but it's just symptomatic of another segment of life where personal touch has kind of gone into default mode. Uh, when people, when we, I should say, put, let me put it this way, we need people, and that need surfaces even in the midst of the mundane. You know, some time back, I called a sizable church uh, wanting to get in touch with a particular pastor that was in that church, and so I dialed the number of this fairly large church in the middle of the afternoon hours when um, I knew that uh, things were open. And when I dialed the church, I, I got an answering machine. And uh, the answering machine, uh, in turn, gave me a list of extension numbers where I can reach the individual that I wanted. And so I dialed the appropriate uh, extension number of the individual I was looking for, and I got another voicemail. And then I I tried the the extension that was next to it and uh, called an individual that might know where he was at, and I got another voicemail. And I thought at that time, you know, what I really need to do is get a hold of an administrative assistant, a a secretary, somebody that can help me out to reach whatever, you know, this person that I wanted to touch base with. And so I just quit and redialed and did it all over again. And I ended up recycling what I did the first time. And so I made two phone calls. I got six answering machines and no people. Now, after an experience like that, you know, you really need a verbal hug. <laughs> and so I, I called Susanna. And... Uh, I got a voicemail. (laughs) You know, after after that, I just ran up the white flag and surrendered, you know, okay. Now, our text today is a seminal passage that reminds us that Christianity is community. And I love the word community that's built into the title of this church, the name of this church. Uh, You know, when Philip requested of Jesus to show them the Father, uh, Philip understood that the Father happened to be a person. 
And when Jesus comes back and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus is affirming that the Heavenly Father is also a person. And it's the personal aspect of the Christian faith that helps us understand and even accept the exclusive claims and extensive demands that God puts on us. Now, in your outline bulletin there, I've got one major point and three implications that come out of that, so that's what we're going to look at today. First of all, the major point is this. Christianity is a relationship with the living God, and the term really relationship is important. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, we find these words. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and that he knows me. Now, I want you to stay with me for a moment. And I want you to imagine that you're absolutely brilliant, a brilliant individual. Some of you are probably doing this a little bit too easily, but nevertheless, (laughs) just imagine that you're brilliant, and in fact, you're so smart that you know that every university in all of the United States would love to have you as part of their teaching faculty. you know, when, you, when you're, you've got that many resources, invariably what happens is it's easy to get trapped in a little bit of personal vanity. And uh, it comes out in all kinds of different ways, mostly subtle, but nevertheless, everybody figures it out. Um, or let me <clears throat> give you another analogy. Let, imagine that you're an unusually gifted athlete. Uh, imagine that you're the sole heir of $5 billion. What kind of life would you live? What kind of experience would you have in any of those situations? And here's the point. God says, it's nothing compared to the satisfaction of knowing me. You know, the Bible dares, really anybody, to try and disprove that. And people who have exceeded and uh, succeeded in, in, a, in doing well in this world, as well as knowing Christ, say, God is right. There, there's no comparison between uh, getting the accoutrements of this world compared to knowing Jesus Christ in those situations. Uh, God is right. John 17, verse 3, Jesus distills the essence of life to one sentence. He says this, and he's speaking of the Father. He says, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and me whom you have sent. Uh, In the words of the Apostle Paul, we're to be rooted in the love of God, We're to be filled with the fullness of God, and we're to grow in the stature of God. Uh, We're not to grow up into some cosmic consciousness, but into the stature of a person, and that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In Jesus Christ, we find an amazing combination of virtues. There's tenderness without weakness. There's humility without self-consciousness. There's power without harshness. There's holiness without distance. Jesus never uttered a false word. He never took a sidestep. Throughout his life, he was absolute beauty and moral glory. And when Jesus tells Philip, if you've seen me, Philip, you have in fact seen the Father, Jesus is not using the Greek word for literal light, if you please, or literal insight. Uh, he's, he's talking about, you're not talking about, you know, the light that passes back to the retina and so forth. What he's talking about is not literal sight, but perceptive sight. I see God the Father in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, of course, you are literally born again. The Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart. He's planted within you the spiritual DNA of Jesus Christ himself. Now, when the Bible lays out ethical prescriptions and moral injunctions, it always assumes, always assumes that you're part of the family of God. Uh, if you're not part of the family, then invariably what happens, you see all of these laws, all of these requests, all of these rules, if you please, as simply a ladder to get to Christ. And, and Christ wants to abolish that thought uh, from your minds. It's really the outworking of his grace in your life that, that wants you to do that. So Christianity is a relationship with the living God. And uh, I want to get into the three implications. The first one is this. The exclusive claims of Christianity make sense only in the context of relationship. Now, we live in a pluralistic culture. You know, we're kind of a melting pot of ideas and religious systems. Our, our pluralistic culture here in America extols toleration and, contend, and condemns dogmatism. And this is particularly true with respect to claims of possessing truth. Uh, verse 6, John 14, 6, familiar verse, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus is making a statement. And the statement that he's making, he says, there are not many trails up the same mountain where all of them reach to the top where God is. In other words, there's not a Hindu trail, there's not an Islam trail, there's not a, a moral trail, there's not a Buddhist trail that goes up and all meet God. What Jesus is saying here is that there is one trail, there is one source of truth, and there is one giver of life, and that happens to be me. Not me, but him. Okay? So it happens to be, Jesus, it's me. And that's why, you know, in a real sense, we cannot find our way into people's heart in any manner that we choose. We've got to be invited in. Now, let me give you a few absurd illustrations here. I don't even like them, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. Uh, let's say that you're a young single guy, uh, maybe mid-20s. 
And uh, you happen to see at church today a young single girl, maybe in the same capacity. And you say, you know what? I'd like to get to know her. And so you go over to her after the service and you say, you know what? I'd like to, to get to know you a little bit. And she, uh, she says, maybe so. Why don't we meet for a cup of coffee this week somewhere or something like that? And you say, no, I want to get to know you right now, right here, this moment. And she comes back and says, uh, you're talking like a good way to get dropped like a hot rock, okay? Well, let me give you another extreme illustration. Let's say that you're a great athlete. You know, we have some athletic people here in this group. And you're especially good at football. And after the service today, you uh, approach a young lady that you've had your eye on for a while and say, you know, I'd like to get to know you a little bit. And she comes back and says, great, it sounds good to me, but I want you to know sports mean absolutely nothing to me. I don't know the difference between you know, a first down and a hole in one. But I do like literature. And then you come back and say, as the guy, too bad for you because I'm going to win your heart through my athletics. You're going to come to me because of that. Now, people don't say that. People don't act like that. At least I hope that we don't. But uh, we cannot get at the heart of any, get to the heart of any particular individual in the way in which we please. We need to be let in from the other side. And so when the God of creation says, the way into my presence is through my son, then that's the way we have to go. Uh, if you want a relationship with someone, and uh, they want a relationship with you, then it's got to be done on terms where both people feel comfortable, where you just can't manhandle or, or barge in where you're not welcome. And that's the way it is with the Lord. Uh, let me give you the second implication. The extensive demands of Christ make sense only in the context of relationship. Now, we say, well, what does Christ demand out of us? And uh, the short answer to this is absolute submission. You know, there are three worldviews, if you please. There are probably more, but there are three main worldviews today that compete for the hearts of people. Uh, the first worldview would be the one that we're most used to, and that would be theism. And theism would be the biblical God who speaks and who gives the law. We understand theism. Uh, a second worldview would be naturalism. And naturalism uh, contends that the only thing that's real is the material, uh, what you can see, what you can feel, what you can touch. There's no spiritual world. There's no transcendent interference. There's no afterlife. There's no real morality. And that would be naturalism. Now, the third worldview would be pantheism. And pantheism says there's no personal God, but there is this life force. It's in everything, and it's part of everything. So looking back for just a second, naturalism says the only thing that's real is the material, 
the spiritual is an illusion. Pantheism says the only thing real is the spiritual. The material is an illusion. This world is an illusion. And therefore, we need to create our own reality. So the limitations of this world really aren't necessarily there. Anything you want to happen can happen. Now, naturalism and pantheism, as different as they are, they do agree in one point, one area. Neither of them calls for submission to an external standard. In both systems, there's no absolute right or wrong. In both systems, you must decide what happens to be good for you. Now, these two things, naturalism and pantheism, appeal to our fallen nature because it explains why naturalism, which is atheism, and pantheism, which is new age, it explains why they are, in fact, so popular uh, today in the United States because they just don't demand anything. Now, in contrast, of course, the demands of Christianity on human behavior are extensive. Uh, that's why, in many cases, it's so unpopular with those that we try to talk to about today. You see, if you reject Christianity because you don't want to lose control of your life, um, then you'd better not get married or make a friend. Because if you get married, if you make a good friend, you do lose a huge measure of control of your own life. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this, you know, marriage and friendship, you know, just demand honesty and personal disclosure. But C.S. Lewis adds this, to love is to be vulnerable and to know a broken heart. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, give it to no one. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it, lock it up in the casket of your selfishness. And in that casket, it won't be broken. It will be unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. And the only place outside of heaven where you can be safe from all the dangers of love is hell, what C.S. Lewis says. Now, the extensive demands of a loving God are really not a burden because they reflect the beauty of the character of Jesus Christ and will produce reproduce, if you please, that beauty in you and in me. And they lead not to death, they lead to life, not to bondage, they lead to freedom. You see, uh, God wants us to have, in part at least, an intellectual faith. He wants us to understand who God is. He wants you to understand why Christ came. He wants you to understand what the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in your life. So God wants us to have an intellectual faith. That's why we learn. But God also wants us to have an emotional faith. He wants us to have a strong, visceral, and serendipitous element. He wants us to be joyful at the work of God in our lives. Uh, the Spirit of God wants us to be blown away by the debt of sin that has been paid for by Christ on our behalf. So God wants us to have an emotional faith. But he also wants us to have a volitional faith. Uh, where 
we're disciplined and faithful. Oh, we're, we can be counted on during the difficult episodes of life. Uh, where we lead with strength and encouragement and motivation of others. So, uh, God wants us uh, to have that kind of faith. Now, let me give you the third implication. Because Christianity is relationship, it must be experienced in community. Now, the Apostle Paul says these words in Ephesians chapter 2, and they are great. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, this is really the context, and the context of all of this is Jews and Gentiles coming together. The, the Apostle Paul wanted to reach his own people, but God also had him have a tremendous ministry to the Gentiles just on his missionary journey. And really what he's talking about is like uh, the, the family of God is far bigger than gender. It's far bigger than nationality or what you are because it includes all men and women, boys and girls, and uh, people from all different ethnic groups, and that's just the body of Christ. Uh, being in God's family just supersedes it all. Now, a as a community, as a community church here, please, uh, we have a couple of responsibilities. And one is to communicate the credibility of the Christian faith. Now, Christianity is credible because it's true. It's intellectually coherent. It hangs together. It answers the questions of life. It explains the problems of evil and why human beings have value. So uh, we communicate the credibility of the Christian faith, but we also have another responsibility, and that's to communicate the plausibility of the Christian faith. In other words, Christianity is plausible simply because it works. It pragmatically meets uh, the needs that people have. It fulfills desires to live a life of wonder and of purpose. You see, the plausibility of the Christian faith only happens in community. Only happens in community. You see, the world needs to see relationships that are inexplicable other than God. The world must see a combination in us of truth and love. The world must see accountability as well as compassion. The world must see laughter and weeping. In other words, the church's corporate life is absolutely, must be, Remarkable, what we are as a group. Let me uh, close. I'm not very long today, and 
I'll take all your thanksgiving in a few minutes from now. <laughs> but, but let me close with an analogy. Uh, those of you who uh, enjoy water skiing, I'm sure some of you do. I did a lot of it on the Colorado River as a high school and college student and so forth. But those of you who enjoy water skiing know that rivers have both warm spots and cold spots. And uh, so do churches. Uh, we have a warm spot and we have a cold spot. And uh, many of you uh, feel the warmth of this body. I mean, you're well connected. You have lots of friends. You come here. You look forward to seeing people and uh, catching up a little bit. It's, it's just a well-connected body of people here. Uh, it, it's a place, uh, it's a family. But oftentimes, those, and I'm going to use Harvest as an example here, those in Harvest who are very well-connected uh, can easily walk past somebody else whom they believe is well-connected too. And oftentimes, uh, those individuals are not so well-connected, and it might be that they think, you know, just by one experience or two, that maybe harvest isn't quite as warm as I hoped it would be. Uh, you know, and what happens is, is that this unconscious indifference that we can so easily have when we make a beeline for certain individuals uh, needs to spread to the whole river, if you please, uh, to make sure that everybody is, is in a warm and toasty water, if you please, rather than some out there shivering or we're enjoying the warmth of the body. Uh, a weird analogy, but that's kind of what God wants to produce so that everybody is looked out after, everybody is addressed, everybody is raked in. It needs to happen in, in the promised land. It needs to happen in the park. It needs to happen amongst the young adults and those of us who have been around for a while. In other words, people are looking for more than just a, a religious knowledge when they come to church. They need... The, the aspect of the community. And so the Christian community is a body of people united around truth that produces dramatic change. And that makes sense. And it makes sense because Christianity is tied to a person. And a person has the right, and God above all persons has the right to say, this is the way to my heart. This is the way you get into me. We have that right. God has that right. We understand God has that right. But we also need to understand people have that right as well. And so we just want to treat each other so well within the community here that hearts are opened up and blessed by the community itself. And it's all based upon the fact of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. That's the one thing we have in common. Different professions, uh, different abilities, but the one thing we've got in common is we praise the Lord Jesus Christ who actually came down, lived the life we could not live, 
died the death we deserve to die. And again, I remind you, on that cross of Jesus Christ, God did that double transaction where he took all of our sin and put it on his own dear son and took the perfect righteousness of his dear son for 33 years on this earth, never took a side step, never smirked, never made fun of anybody, never even slightly sinned. And he took our sin upon himself as the innocent lamb. And it's that double transaction that merits for us to be in the family of God. And he says, you know what? I want my universal family of God to be in these local churches until I come again, to behave just like we're all in heaven itself. Everybody's included. Nobody's dismissed. There aren't more important people in this room than you. Everybody's on the same level. And that's what the church is really all about. And that's what really glorifies the Lord because he opened his arms to everyone. God bless you. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the things that you, uh, in many subtle ways, by the way in which Christ behaved and by the doctrine that uh, has been expounded by some of the great writers of the Bible itself, that uh, who we are, and reminding us of our value, O Lord, and uh, we need to hear it all the time because it's so easy to get down on ourselves because we're not this or not something of that. And thank you, Father, that uh, you stand with us and continue to work with us. In Christ's name, amen.